The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall mark for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell the whole congregation of Israel that on the tenth of this month they are to take a lamb for each family, a lamb for each household. If a household is too small for a whole lamb, it shall join its closest neighbor in obtaining one. The lamb shall be divided in proportion to the number of people who eat of it. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a year old male. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembled congregation of Israel shall slaughter it at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the lamb that same night. They shall eat it roasted over the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted over the fire with its head, legs, and inner organs. You shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. This is how you shall eat it. Your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it hurriedly. It is the Passover of the Lord. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both human beings and animals. On all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord." The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague shall destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be a day of remembrance for you. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall observe it as a perpetual ordinance. This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, we hear in this passage today the same thing that the Israelites are hearing, that there is bad news coming. This story comes in the series of stories where plagues are coming across Egypt. Terrible things are happening. And then we get to this, which will be the tenth plague. And we hear those words in verse 12, where God is speaking and says, I will strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both human beings and animals. And it sounds like such a violent story. And it is. Death is coming. But if you read from where we were last week in chapter 3, where God is calling Moses to where we are now in chapter 12, you would have read through this series of stories where this great conflict, this great contest is going on between Moses and Pharaoh about who is going to take care of these Israelites and where they're going to get to live. But you realize as you're reading through it that it's not only a contest between Moses and Pharaoh, but this is a God-sized struggle. It is a struggle between the gods of Egypt 
And the gods of the Hebrew people, the Lord, as it says, or Y-H-W-H in the original manuscripts, you remember God said, I am who I am in our reading last week. This is the God that had been speaking and shaping and calling people all the way back through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and now through Moses and his brother Aaron have been called to come and speak on behalf of God to Pharaoh and to the Israelite people. Chapters 3 through 12 detail this great struggle, this great saga about whether or not the Pharaoh is going to continue to hold the Israelites as slaves or whether or not they're going to be set free. There's a series of plagues that come across Egypt where terrible things are happening and we have if you've read up through up to chapter 12, you've read about the first nine plagues. And what the authors are trying to describe is that the God of the Hebrews, the God of their ancestors, of the Israelites, that this is a God who hears and responds to the cries of the people. But right here in the middle of all of these terrible plagues and this great contest and conflict that's going on while the Pharaoh's trying to decide whether or not he's going to let these people go free from their role as slaves we get to chapter 12 and all of a sudden we have this liturgical insert about the calendar it seems to be a strange place to stop and begin to talk about what the Jewish calendar should look like. And yet that's exactly what we find in those first couple of verses. After this great struggles going on, we turn the page to start chapter 12. You heard it in those first couple of verses. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall mark for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Not only is God going to set these people free so that they can experience some individual liberty, but so that they can serve as God's people in the world. God is shaping these people. He's signaling to them, this is a new beginning. You should mark it with a new calendar. You're going to be my people. I'm going to lead you to freedom. And from now on, you will be my people in the world. Moses and Aaron are becoming their new leaders as spokespeople for God. And they get these very specific instructions about how they are to prepare and observe this particular night. And then what's going to happen if they follow God or if they don't? But there's a lot more going on here than just instructions for choosing and butchering a lamb. These early stories become foundational. They become foundational for the whole Judeo-Christian religious experience. There's several things here. I want to read you verses 3 through 6 and then look at some of the things that are embedded in this passage. God is speaking, says to Moses and Aaron, Tell the whole congregation of Israel, 
that on the tenth of this month they are to take a lamb for each family, a lamb for each household. If a household is too small for a whole lamb, it shall join its closest neighbor in obtaining one. The lamb shall be divided in proportion to the number of people who eat of it. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a year old male. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembled congregation of Israel shall slaughter it at twilight. It sounds like just instructions about what's going to happen that night. But it's so much more. Let me show you, point out to you a few of the things I think are embedded here that still impact our religious practice today. The first thing we might notice is that God is speaking to us not just as individuals. It's, we're more than an individual. God is saying through Moses and Aaron that we are a part of a people, of God's people. For the Jews, it's most often spoken of as the chosen people of God, singled out and called to be God's people in the world. For Christians, it's more often referred to as the body of Christ. That we are a part of one another. Both ideas resonate with this idea that we are in this together. We are members one of another. That we have commitments and obligations and connections with each other because we are a part of God's people. We are a part of God's family. A second thing to notice here is that we are called to build our calendars around the priorities that God gives us. God signals to them there's a new page about to be turned. I want you to start a new calendar. You're going to be a free people. But we also have a liturgical calendar. As Christians, we follow the liturgical seasons we have seasons of preparation followed by seasons of celebration which are to propel us into seasons of growth, right? We do not start the Christian year on January 1, but we start it four Sundays before Christmas, so usually the last Sunday of November or the first Sunday of December. And we have the season of preparation we call Advent. Then we prepare up until Christmas, and then we celebrate Christmas or Christmas tide. It's followed by a season called Epiphany, which is a season of growth, a season of learning more about what God is doing in Christ. And then we start the cycle over with a preparatory season we call Lent. And six weeks leading up to Easter, we're in that season of preparation, getting ourselves ready to celebrate Easter. Then followed with the Sundays after Easter, which lead into what we call ordinary time, which is a season of growth and maturity as individuals and as a church. We have a liturgical calendar that helps us pay attention to the rhythm of life and what we should be thinking about and where we should be focusing if we want to be followers of Christ, if we want to be tuning in on who God is and what God is doing in the world. Embedded in these passages is the suggestion that we should build our calendar, that we should organize our life, that we should structure your life to make sure you remember to honor God, to make sure that you keep God at the center or at the core of who you are and how you live. A third thing, concern for your neighbor is pointed out here. 
Did you remember that phrase where it says each family should have a lamb or each household? But then right after that, it made an exception. It said for a smaller household, or you could say for a poorer household, you can share a lamb. So there's concern from the very beginning for those who live around us, for our neighbors. The idea that we're supposed to care for each other and make sure that everyone gets included and everybody is a part of what's about to happen. That everyone who's a part of the whole congregation is invited to be a part of this. Tied to care for neighbor is the next notion which has to do with equality. The fourth foundational idea here is proportionality. Proportionality. Remember it said that you take the lamb and then divide it into portions based on how many people are there to make sure that everyone gets a portion. So it's not based on, oh, I was the first one to dinner, or I'm the biggest one here, I take what I want. It's the idea that everyone deserves a portion. And so it's to be divided into equal portions so that everyone gets a part of that. We'll see this whole idea develop further in terms of proportions or portions when the Scriptures begin to talk about giving back to God. And they'll talk about proportional giving or percentage giving. Most commonly in the Bible, it says that people of faith are to give back 10% of our wealth or our income to God and God's work. It's a way to say thank you. It's a way to honor God. It's the way to make sure that we keep wealth and money in its proper place in our lives. But it's in Scripture most often talked about proportionally in terms of how we decide what to give. We don't all have the same amount of money or wealth, so we're not all told to give the same amount back, but to give proportionally to what we have or by percentage. A fifth and final thing that's listed here suggests that we are to bring our best that when we come before God, we're to bring our best. When we declare that we're disciples of Christ, then we're to bring our best as disciples. In our passage, it talked about choosing a lamb or a goat without blemish. That is, go to the herd and pick out the very best one. The one that seems most perfect. Pick that one out. And offer that one to God. Give your best to God is a foundational principle within the Judeo-Christian tradition. I remember from the time I was a very young boy, probably three, four, five years old, that on Sunday morning my mother would get me up and I would have to put on the fanciest clothes I had. I had a little tie and a jacket when I was this big. And she always told me it's because we're getting ready to go to Sunday school and church. And when we go to church, we bring our best. We dress up to show that we're honoring God and we want to be at our best 
as a person, and we show that in terms of how we dress to go to church. We're to bring our best, not only when we come here, but in whatever we do as a way to honor God because we understand that we're a child of God, that we're a part of God's family. And so, of course, we want to represent God or Christ well, so we are to bring our very best. These foundational principles are embedded in the text here, even though it's a little bit hard to see them sometimes because of the violence and the blood. And yet they're so important to understand because they get built on as Judaism and then Christianity are being built and structured for our benefit. But they're not only foundational principles. I think they serve as a pretty good checklist if we wanted to ask ourselves, how are we doing in our own walk of faith? Do you recognize that there's something bigger going on in your life than just what you are thinking about? That there's something bigger going on in the world? And when you claim to be a part of the family of Christ, you are saying there's something bigger going on. Do you make God and the things of God a priority in your life every day? Are you sure to include care for your neighbor in all the ways that you live, in all the choices that you make? Do you think of others and how it will impact them because you're a person of faith? Do you think about proportions or percentages when you think about what you have been entrusted with and how much of that is God's and how much of that you should be giving back to God for God to use for good in the world? Do you bring your best no matter if you're going to school or to work or to a football game or to a social event, do you bring your best? Do you get up every morning and think, I am a child of God. I'm a follower of Christ. I'm going to bring my best. God has given me gifts to use. I'm going to do my best. No matter where you are, we are called to bring our best. I've been telling you about Francis of Assisi. We're using this prayer that's attributed to him, this prayer of peace. It says so many important things. It starts with that phrase, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. So I've used that as the idea for the sermon series. Lord, make me an instrument of yours. Use me, utilize me, God, in the world for peace and love, for pardon. And for the phrase we're on today, where there is doubt, faith. Let me sow faith. So I've told you in these last few weeks how Francis grew up wealthy and then got enamored with this idea of going to war and then was captured and kept as a 
prisoner of war for a year, and finally his father pays the ransom to get him out of the enemy's hands, and he comes home, but he is a changed person. He feels this call of God on his life to rebuild the church, both figuratively as well as literally. There is this broken down church ruin close to where Francis lives. He feels the call to rebuild the structure, but he has no money. He can't figure out how to start. So he goes to his father's warehouse and goes through his inventory, gets some bolts of cloth because he was a cloth merchant, takes it to the market and sells it. One little problem. He forgot to ask his father. He forgot to check with dad. His father is furious. He sees this as one more in a series of bad decisions that Francis is making as a young man. He goes to the local bishop who's like the magistrate and complains that his son has stolen this cloth from him. The bishop calls Francis in. Here's his side of the story and sides with his father and says to him, you have stolen this from him. You must repay him. Well, Francis still has the money, so he gives it back to his father. But then he begins to take off his clothes because all of those were purchased by his father as well. And he takes off all of his outer garments and gives them back to his dad and says to the bishop, from now on, only God will be my father and provider. And the bishop gives him a rough, unadorned tunic to put on. And Francis adopts that as his mode of dress for the rest of his life. But I think the dynamic that that part of the story about Francis illustrates is this idea of trusting God and then doubting God and then moving back to trusting God. I think he trusted God and believed God was calling him. But then when he began to try to figure out how to build the church, he had doubts about how to make that happen. He didn't know what to do, so he takes the cloth. But when he's standing there before the bishop, I think he moves back to trust once again and says, I surrender all of who I am to you. God, you will be my father. You will be my provider. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me so love. Where there is injury, pardon. And where there is doubt, faith. Way back in the fifth chapter of Exodus, we find out that Moses and Aaron, even though they have responded to the call of God to travel from Midian where they were down into Egypt, they still have doubts. They're still not sure that God's going to take care of all this. Let me read you just the 23rd verse. You get a sense of this out of chapter 5 in terms of what's going on. Then Moses turned again to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you mistreated this people? Why did you ever send me? 
since I first came to Pharaoh to speak in your name. He has mistreated this people, and you have done nothing at all to deliver your people. Moses trusted God, and now he's doubting him, and he will end up trusting again. The Hebrew people have trusted God, and they have their doubts. They grumble throughout the story of the Exodus where they're not sure if God's going to provide or take care of them, and then they come back to faith. It seems to be a prevalent characteristic of humanity that we trust, and then we doubt, and then we trust again. Apparently, it's a part of what it means to be a person of faith. Is sometimes you trust, sometimes you doubt, then you trust again. My conclusion, doubt is a part of faith. And not only a part of it in a negative way, but it can also be a part of it in a positive way. Because you see, doubt can stimulate our thinking it can motivate our seeking of God. There's a great quote by the Christian author, Frederick Buechner, who writes about this. I want to read you just a couple of sentences. Whether your faith is that there is a God or that there is not a God, if you don't have any doubts, you're either kidding yourself or asleep. Doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake and moving. God gives Moses and Aaron and the whole congregation of Israel these specific instructions of how they're beginning to work together as a people. And I think part of why they're given such instructions and why we have rituals of faith today and so even in those times of doubt, we still have practices, we still have rituals that we can participate in that keep us connected to our spiritual lives and connected to one another and keep us within the community so that we can receive support and encouragement even in times of doubt. Thanks be to God. Amen.